Happy New Year, everyone. Christ is risen. Amen. It's so good to see your faces. Thanks for... Uh, how many of you stayed up last night till 12 or beyond? I just want to see by a show of hands. Wow. And yet, here you are. Look at you. So for all of you who are at home, because you stayed up late last night and decided not to come, no, I do know there are a lot of people that are homesick, and we bless you, and uh, we miss you, and we can't wait to see you again. Guys, it's good to be together in the house of the Lord. For those of you who joined us for Christmas Eve, thank you. We had a record-breaking Christmas Eve here at New Life Midtown. And uh, I just had a blast. I tell you, those two services... They were phenomenal. Again, for all of you who put time and effort and energy into making those services special, thank you guys so much. And Brad Hale on the violin in the worship ministry. Oh, bro, sorry, Philip, you're right, Philip. I have more interaction with Brad. It's Philip. Thank you so much for your ministry, Philip. Wow, that was, that was amazing. And uh, I know we have to rotate our worship ministers out, but I could just have him up there every single Sunday. No pressure, but I'm just saying, yeah, we got a lot of agreement in the house there. Uh, I have a quick word that I want to give to you just to open up the new year. I got this uh, while we're in worship, so probably about two minutes or so. I want to give you this word. It's out of Philippians. I want to give the the scripture team time to put this on the screens for you. Philippians chapter 3. And I want to just exhort you very quickly out of chapter 3, verses 12 through 14, and then uh, I'll pray. We'll pray over our new year together, and then we'll go into a word, which I really feel like is a word of impartation for this house. It's not a teaching word as much as it is a culture and vision and heart-setting word for who I believe God wants us to be and who God is making us to be as a community of believers. But this is out of Philippians chapter 3, verse 12, Paul says to the church at Philippi, he says, not that I have already obtained all of this. Now, obviously, you have to read the preceding 11 verses to, talk, to figure out what he's talking about when he says this. Not that I have already obtained all of this. And what he's talking about there is he's talking about the surpassing excellency of knowing Jesus. So everything that we have sung about today and everything we have prayed about, Paul in the latter years of his life is telling the church at Philippi that with all of the things that I've done, that in the eyes of the world and particularly in the eyes of the religious community that might seem like great accomplishments, Paul is saying, it's, it's really worth nothing. In fact, he uses some very strong language there. Those of you who are familiar with what Paul says, he's like, it's like rubbish. It's garbage. Everything that I've accomplished in my own strength and in my own righteousness, apart from the righteousness of God, he's like, it's trash. But what I'm really after is the surpassing excellency or greatness of knowing God. That is really what I want my entire life to be summed up as, to know who God is. And to reflect that knowledge of God to the world and the way that I live. And so he says this. He goes, I haven't obtained that. I have not arrived. I've done a lot of great exploits for God by the power of God in the name of God. But friends, this is Paul speaking. I have not obtained the sole treasure and the sole purpose of my life. I have not arrived at my goal. He says, continuing in verse 12. But I press on. Everybody say press on. on. I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Now listen to that language. He says, I'm pressing on 
to lay a hold of something, to take possession of something, to realize something, and that is I'm trying to lay a hold of the reason why Christ laid hold of me. That God actually chased me down. He apprehended me. He pursued me. He was in hot pursuit of my life as a man. And for those of you who are familiar with the story of Paul, his name was previously Saul, and he was a murderer of Christians. He was so zealous for the Judaistic law of God that he had no paradigm and no revelation of who Jesus was or what the kingdom of God was about. And so God literally visited him, showed up to him, knocked him off of his high horse, figuratively and literally, right, and revealed the resurrected Christ to Paul. And then for the rest of his life, Paul said, I've got to know why you did that. I've got to know why you chased me down. I've got to know why you saved me by grace. I've got to know, and I'm going to give my life for it. Verse 13, he says, Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of the purpose of God in my life. But one thing, say one thing, but one thing I do, I'm going to forget what's behind. And listen, the context here is Paul is speaking about the great things that he's accomplished. But we could also say the mistakes, right? And the, the accomplishments of our life and the failures of our life can both be stumbling blocks for us to pursuing God and his purpose in our lives, right? So if we just focus on our mistakes, then we, we settle into condemnation and shame. If we just focus on the great things that we accomplished, we can become complacent and be filled with pride. And so Paul is saying to himself, I'm chasing the thing that I'm never, ever going to really be able to fully apprehend until eternity. And that is, I'm chasing you. I'm chasing you. And I'm chasing the reason why you chased me. So I forget what is behind, and I strain toward what is ahead. I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. I think that word is for somebody today. You know, the, the narrative that the world wants to sell us is that success in a year is only defined by what we accomplished or by what we produced or by great adventures that we took or uh, great discoveries that we made or whether or not our 401k increased. But the Christian or the biblical perspective of success is different. It is, are you walking faithfully with God? Are you living a life of faithful obedience before God? And that is the Christian definition of success. Which means that no matter what 2022 held for you, as we step into and over the threshold of a new year, if the primary pursuit of our life is God, and fulfilling his purpose and being faithful to him, friends, we will be successful in the eyes of heaven. And with that, I want to pray for you, and I want us to jump in to the scripture that we have today in Luke chapter 2. God, I'm so grateful for everything that you did in our lives in 2022. I'm so thankful, Father, for the way that you were faithful to us. I'm thankful in the quiet, mundane moments of our lives that you were there, you were visiting us. You were shaping us, God. You were molding our hearts. 
I'm thankful, Father, for the things that we thought that we wanted, but they were not our best, and you withheld them from us, and you formed us in that. I'm thankful even for the difficult seasons of our lives. I'm thankful, Father, for the hard lessons that we learned that turned our hearts to you. I'm thankful, Father, for the way that you visited us. I'm thankful for the way you provided for us. I'm thankful, God, that you are not only in our past, but you are in our future, that you are beckoning us to come. I'm thankful, God, that you are the one who resurrects dead dreams and dead faith and dead hope inside of us. And I'm asking, oh God, that you would do that today for me and that you would do that for my friends, that you would resurrect faith in us, that you would resurrect passion, and that you would resurrect fresh devotion to the living God. And that we could say at the end of 2023 that we could look back and we could say that this was one of the most meaningful and fruitful years in God that we have lived that we made great strides in our relationship with God, that we grew in our character and our maturity, that we grew in our passion, that we grew in our evangelism, that we grew in the things of God in our life. So today we devote this year to you. We consecrate 2023. It belongs to you. Holy Spirit, you have permission to do in us and through us whatever it is that you see best. We're willing vessels, and we pray it today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. At the beginning of October, while we were still in the book of Nehemiah, I had a friend of mine who reached out and asked if I'd come and speak at his church. He he just recently became the pastor of the church that he grew up in, and he said, Jade, one of the first people that I want to bring out, he had a list of three guys, and I was fortunate enough to be one of those guys. And the series that they were in was a series called stained glass lives. And I asked him, I said, Stephen, tell me a little bit about this series and uh, what you're hoping to accomplish in this series. And he said, it's really, really simple. He said, just take any person of the Bible and talk about how God has shined his light through their lives. That's why it's called stained glass lives. And I thought, oh, that's easy enough. We're in the book of Nehemiah. I'm just going to take the person of Nehemiah. I've been sitting and soaking in Nehemiah for weeks And I thought, this is going to be really, really simple. So I typed up all my notes and sent them over to him so they could get all the slides that were set up. On Saturday night, as we were in our little apartment, I took Milan and Kenya with me. They were in another room. They were sleeping. It was about 10 p.m. I laid my head back on the couch. I was just communing with the Lord. And in that place of just communing with the Lord, I feel like I heard the soft whisper of God. And I felt like the Lord tapped me on the shoulder and said, would you tell them about my friend, Simeon? And as I began, I went back to Luke chapter 2 because Luke chapter 2 is the only place that we see Simeon referenced in the entire scriptures. We don't hear about Simeon before Luke 2. We don't hear about Simeon after Luke 2. We just hear about Simeon in these short verses while Joseph and Mary are dedicating their eight-year-old baby. And so I'm thinking about ways to like maneuver Simeon into the message that I've already crafted and I've already been sitting in. And I'm negotiating with God. It's about 1030 now and I'm thinking, sure, Lord, this is going to be simple. I'm sure there's a point. Nehemiah was a man of prayer. Simeon's a man of prayer. I'm like, and I felt like the Lord said, you can do that if you want. But I'm asking you, I'm asking you, would you tell them 
exclusively about my friend, Simeon. And this is the language that the father used with me. Tell them about my friend. So today, as we start a new year, and particularly as we're in this transitional point between Christmas tide, stepping into Epiphany, we're just seven days after Christmas. This happens eight days after the birth of Jesus. I think it's very, very poignant that I tell you about the father's friend, a man by the name of Simeon. And you're going to have to bear with me. I'm going to find myself pretty tender because Simeon is fast becoming one of my heroes in the scripture. He's becoming a man that I'm wanting to model my life after. He's becoming a man that even more than some of the great heroes of the scriptures, Simeon is becoming a man that I want to model my life and I want to model this church after. And if I haven't piqued your curiosity yet, go with me to the book of Luke chapter 2. We're going to begin in Luke chapter 2, verse 22. Scripture says, When the time for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him, their son Jesus, to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon. He was righteous and he was devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. So moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts one day. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms. And he praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations. He is a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and the rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and the sword will pierce your own soul too. Let's keep reading. Verse 36. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and then she was a widow until she was 84. Now, many scholars believe that based on the customs of marriage at that time, Anna could have been anywhere between 17 and 20 years old. Which if you do the math, let's just do round numbers here. And if she's 20 years old and her husband dies at 27, from 27 to 84, she has devoted her life to fasting and praying. Devoted her life to consecration before the Lord, living in the temple, sitting in the presence of God, looking in the face of the Lord, being a true intercessor before God. Amen. She was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple. She worshiped night and day, fasting and praying. And coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and she spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption 
of Jerusalem. Friends, let's pray. Holy Spirit, I need your help today. I need your help to do what I believe is on your heart to be done today. And that is to impart fresh wonder and fresh passion and fresh love for Jesus inside of every single one of us. Lord, as we look to your friends, Simeon and Anna, I'm asking that you would awaken something inside of us. I'm asking that you would provoke us in a way that only you can do, in a way that moves us to life, in a way that transcends the culture's definition of resolutions and that makes us truly resolute in our pursuit of God. I'm asking, Holy Spirit, today that you would open our eyes and that you would put the spirit of the fear of the Lord on us that allows us to see your beauty and your worth. Give us the spirit of wisdom today to what the Lord is speaking, and I pray it today in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things that fascinates me about Simeon is that Simeon was a friend of God. And here's how I know this. this part of this is by just deductive reasoning. I'm looking at Simeon's interaction with God. And in a season of Israel's history, where there is no prophetic word from the end of Malachi until John the Baptist comes on the scene, and Israel is underneath Roman oppression, and there is no prophetic word that is bringing governmental guidance and direction to the nation of Israel. There's this faithful, solitary, quiet man that nobody knows anything about prior, and he has set his heart to being a man who seeks God. He has set his heart to building relational history with God. He has set his heart on finding himself in the secret place, locking eyes with the God of eternity. And God is so moved by Simeon that nowhere else do we see this happening. God shows up to Simeon and he makes Simeon personal promises. Do you catch that? Because Simeon rehearses these promises back to God. Now what we do know is we know that throughout the course of the Old Testament prophets that we're constantly seeing these big power players like Isaiah and Jeremiah and even some of the smaller ones like Micah and Hosea, and they're announcing the arrival of the Messiah. And so Simeon is familiar with all of these because he's familiar with the Old Testament, and yet God takes it a step closer and he says, Simeon, I'm going to make you promises. You're not even going to die until your eyes behold my son. I'm going to keep you, Simeon. I'm going to preserve you. You're waiting for something that shall come to pass. I promise you. When I think about Simeon's friendship with God, I think about men throughout the Old Testament that God exclusively says about them, this man was my friend. I think about this story in the Old Testament in the book of Genesis when God is about to bring judgment on a particular city, on a particular group of people, and he's taking counsel with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then he asks the counsel of the Trinity this really peculiar question. He says, should I tell my friend Abraham what we're about to do? Could you imagine that? Could you imagine God leaning over to the Son and to the Holy Spirit and saying, hey guys, should, should I tell Amber what we're about to do? Should I tell Mike? Should I tell Jody? Should I tell Christian? Should, should I tell them what I'm planning? I've, I've got some things that I've got up my sleeve that I want to do. 
I've got some things that I want to bless their family line with. It's going to happen many, many years from now, but you think I should let them into the secret council of the Godhead? I think about a man by the name of Moses in the Old Testament. The book of Numbers tells us this story where Moses is encountering God and he comes down and he begins to lead the children of Israel according to the statutes of God. But then his brother and his sister actually don't agree with some of the decisions that Moses is making and they start to talk about Moses behind his back. They're grumbling, they're complaining against Moses' leadership. And God steps in and he calls a meeting where he calls Moses and Aaron and Miriam and he says, hey, listen, have you guys been talking about my friend? Have you guys been talking smack about my friend? Like, I would just, I would just love that. I would love that. I would love like you're at home and you're like talking about Pastor Jade and God just shows up and says, hey, are you talking about my friend? Which I know none of you would ever do, right? So this is for all those other people. God defends his friends. God invites his friends into his conversations. But I think one of the most poignant verses that just gets me is found in Psalm 25, verse 14. This is becoming a life verse of mine. It's becoming a scripture that I throw in the face of God very often in the most respectful way, right? The scripture says that the Lord confides in those who fear him. Another translation says that the Lord shares his secrets, that he tells his secrets to those who fear him. Another translation says that the Lord enters into friendship, with those who fear him. The ESV says the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes his covenant known to them. Simeon was a man that God shared his secrets with. Simeon was a man that God pulled close to himself, and he says, I am going to fulfill my promises, and I'm making you a special promise that you're going to see it in your lifetime. Now, the beautiful thing about Simeon, you guys, is that Simeon was a common man. Simeon was an ordinary man. There was nothing that we know of that was spectacular about Simeon. You know, when you look at some of the heroes of the faith, you think about a guy by the name of Solomon, who the scriptures say that Solomon, he sacrificed thousands of burnt offerings before the Lord, and then God shows up and he says, I'll do whatever you want. We don't have that record of Simeon. There's no great exploits that Simeon has done. There's no massive family line that Simeon comes from. Simeon was a common man. And he had an uncommon relationship with God because he desired it. Like I'm hoping today that something stirs inside of you to say, well, if Simeon could have that kind of friendship with God, so can I. Like if Simeon could court the presence of the Holy Spirit, before Jesus was ever born, I, I think I could have that kind of relationship with God, yes. right? So if we're not careful, we think that exclusive relationship with God belongs to a certain class 
of people in the Christian faith, and I'm here to debunk that today, and I'm here to say that it's not pastors or apostles or prophets or evangelists or teachers or deacons or elders that get exclusive claim on secret relationship with God. It's you. That one of the reasons why God is with us, the reasons why God sent his son into the world is so that he could have that level of intimate relationship, friendship, and fellowship with you. Go with me to the book of James chapter 5. When I hear this phrase that he was a common man, I'm reminded of how the author of James tells us about another common man By the name of Elijah, in James chapter 5, it says that Elijah, verse 17, was a human being. Some translations say that Elijah was a normal man just like you and me. And if you're unfamiliar with the story of Elijah, very simply, this is the guy who calls fire down from heaven. This is the guy who goes 40 days and fasts and is sustained by the strength and the presence and the provision of God. This is the man who hears God show up to him in a still and quiet and a small voice. Many of you may remember the story of Elijah in the time of King Ahab when Elijah goes out and by one word he actually shuts up the heavens and it doesn't rain on the land for three and a half years. One man did that. One man. One man, under the inspiration and under direction and under the power of God, he just steps out one day by the, by, by the direction of God, and he says, heavens, you're not going to reign for three and a half years. And then when the time of judgment was up, God shows up to Elijah, and again, he says, son, it's time to open up the heavens. This is a man, and the scripture tells us he was a normal man. He was a common man. I am convinced that God shows up to common people and he makes them uncommon by the nature of their uncommon obedience and faithfulness to him. And every single one of us can do that. That doesn't belong to the ruling class of Christians. That belongs to you. Secret friendship with God, deep, intimate friendship with God where God shows up to you and he makes you personal promises. Friends, that's available for you. He wants that kind of relationship with you. Simeon was a common man. The scripture also tells us in Luke chapter two that Simeon was righteous and he was devout. He was righteous. He was righteous in an age when being righteous wasn't popular. He was righteous in an age when there were no external rewards for being righteous. And the righteousness pre-Christ, the righteousness before Jesus comes on the scene, as the Old Testament defines righteousness, is a little bit different than how the New Testament defines righteousness. Our righteousness, yours and mine, is based on what Jesus has done for us. Right? There's nothing that you and I can do to merit or garner any form of righteousness in ourselves. It is exclusively by your faith in what God has done through his son Jesus when he laid his life down on the cross. You can't pray enough. You can't give enough. You can't go to church enough. You can't sing enough. You can't fast enough. You can't go on enough mission trips. You can't read your Bible enough. You can't memorize enough scripture. Nothing that you and I can do will make us righteous in the sight of God because he has already done it by virtue of Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross. But in the Old Testament, righteousness was defined like this. It meant having right standing before God. 
It meant that you were right with God. It meant that you had a heart that desired to be obedient before God. I'm reminded of a guy by the name of Joseph. Many of you may know him. Joseph was uh, betrayed by his brothers. He was sold into slavery. And then there's a seductive gal by the name of Potiphar's wife. She doesn't have a name. Her name is Potiphar's wife. And she lies about Joseph. She lies about him. And then he's sent into the prisons, and he's sent there for two years. And and the entire time, Joseph is solely thinking about his relationship with God. In fact, when Potiphar's wife comes to him and tempts him and seduces him, and she says to him, Joseph, lay with me. My husband will never know. Here's what Joseph responds. He says, how will I do this before who? Before God. He had a God consciousness. To be righteous before God in the Old Testament sense of the term, it means that I care about my relationship with God. I care about what I'm doing and how it will affect God's presence and God's activity in my life. Simeon was a righteous man because all of the little hidden invisible decisions of his life, he ran through the grid of how will this affect my relationship with God. Many of you guys know, uh, again, looking at David's life. And God calls David a man after his own heart. But one of the greatest stains on David's life is when David seduces another young lady and, mar- and, and murders her husband, a man by the name of Uriah. And when a prophet comes and confronts David on his sinful actions... David responds by writing a psalm. It's found in Psalm 51. And this is what David says. He says, against you and you only have I sinned. To which I say, no, David, you've sinned against a lot of people. (laughs) You've sinned against Bathsheba. You've sinned against Uriah. You've sinned against against a lot of people. And David's sense of righteousness before God was I am so acutely aware of how my decisions are affecting my relationship with you. Simeon was a righteous man because he cared about his relationship with God. But then the scripture tells us that he was righteous and he was devout. Simeon was an ordinary man. Simeon was a friend with God. Simeon was righteous, but Simeon was devout. This is a really fascinating word because it's only found four times in the New Testament and it's used exclusively by Luke. It's found once in the Gospel of Luke. It's found three times in the book of Acts. Simeon was devout. The first time it's used in the book of Acts is Acts chapter 2. And I believe it's verse verse 2. Let me just make sure I got this right. Acts chapter 2 verse 5. So the Spirit of God pours out on the day of Pentecost. And people are praying in tongues because they're full of the Holy Spirit. And then the scripture tells us that there were devout Jews who had come to Jerusalem for the feast of Pentecost. All right, the next time this word devout is used, it's used in Acts chapter 8. And Acts chapter 8 is very, very fascinating because what happens in the previous verses before Acts chapter 8 verse 1 is The Bible records the story of the first martyr, a man by the name of Stephen. The first man who lays his life down out of his faithfulness and obedience to God. Saul, who later becomes Paul, who we referenced earlier in our service today, is the one who has signed off on Stephen's death. And this is what the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 8 verse 2, that devout men came and they buried Stephen's body. 
Well, that's, that's peculiar, okay? So there's devout people that are going to Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. There's devout men that are burying Stephen's body. What's, what's, what's the thread here? Well, there's another verse in Acts chapter 22. In Acts chapter 22, beginning in verse 12, Paul is recounting his conversion story. And in Paul's conversion story, God shows up to him as he's on his way to Damascus. He knocks him off of his high horse. He says, Paul, Paul, why do you persecute me? Paul is struck blind. And then Paul is retelling the story about a man by the name of Ananias. God instructs Paul to go to Ananias' house. Now, what Paul doesn't know is that God also shows up to Ananias and he says, Ananias, you're going to be having a visitor and I need you to open up your heart and your home to this man and I need you to lay your hands on him because he's going to be a mighty vessel and an instrument of God. To which Ananias says, isn't this the same guy who's killing Christians? And God says, yes, exactly. Trust me, I know what I'm doing here. (laughs) The Bible calls Ananias devout. So what's the common thread here? We've got people that are going to Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. We have, we have brothers of the faith that are bearing Stephen's body, and we have Ananias who shows up or who, who hosts a potential terrorist in his home. In every one of these situations, here's what you find. That on the basis of their devotion, there is a price that every one of these people pay. There's a price. These travelers to Jerusalem, they have to make this long journey to go to Jerusalem to honor God uh, for the feast. The brothers who bury Stephen's body, they have to know somewhere in the back of their head, the same guy who killed Stephen might be hanging around and he could kill us too. And Ananias opens his home up to a terrorist at that time who just killed a Christian. And God is saying, I want you to trust me. And your devotion to me means that you're you're paying a price here. So when the scripture talks about devotion in the way that, that Luke uses the word devotion, it means that out of your devotion, you are willing to sacrifice. This is Simeon. This is how the Bible talks about Simeon, the friend of God. He was a friend of God. He was common. He was ordinary. He was righteous, and he was devout. Then the scripture tells us that he was eagerly awaiting the consolation of Israel. That the thing that grounded Simeon's life was that he had a hope in the promise of God that was beyond himself. Look at the way some of these other translations render this. Simeon was eagerly waiting for the Messiah to come and rescue Israel. Simeon was looking forward to the comfort of Israel. Simeon was looking for the restoration of Israel. I like the way the contemporary English version says this. It says, Simeon loved God, and he was waiting for him to save his people. That'd be a great summation of the Christian faith. That would be a great thing to put on your tombstone. Like, like when it's all said and done with, and your time on your chapter on this earth is done, and people are talking about you, here's what I hope they say. He loved God, and he was waiting for him to save the world. She loved God, and she was waiting faithfully for God to save the world. That's the Christian life. And without even knowing it, Simeon becomes the prototype and the model of what the Christian faith embodies. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. God, you said it. 
You promised it, I believe it, and I'm gonna build my life around an eager expectation that you're the God who keeps promises. I'm not gonna get offended because that could affect my righteous hope. I'm not gonna fall off into promiscuity because that could affect my righteous hope. I am not going to allow my life to be tainted with wickedness because that could affect my righteous hope. I'm not going to become mundane. I'm not going to just allow uh, life to to, to, to medicate me into a place of indifference and passivity because that could affect my righteous hope. Friends, this is the prophetic word I believe that God is speaking to the house today. Like live like the promises of God are true. Live with an eager expectation. This is what Advent is all about. Simeon becomes the poster child for a life of Advent, his entire life. Now, I want you to imagine this. I don't know when God showed up to Israel or or when he showed up to Simeon. I like to believe that God showed up to Simeon somewhere in his 20s or 30s. Which means that if Simeon in his late 70s or his early 80s, it means that Simeon could have easily spent the better part of 50 or 60 years of his life saying, God, I'm going to cash in a lifetime for this moment. I'm going to cash in hours of people thinking I'm a freak or a fanatic. I'm going to cash in thousands and tens of thousands of hours of saying no to temptation and no to seduction and no to passivity and no to indifference and no to sin and no to boredom. And I'm going to keep my eyes fixated and fastened on the promise of God. I'm going to cash it all in. Because Simeon had what I believe can only come by the fear of the Lord. Simeon had revelation. Simeon had revelation that God was worth it all. Because the next thing that we find about Simeon, which is something I've been praying over my life recently, is that the Holy Spirit was on him. Luke chapter 2, verse 25, Scripture tells us that Simeon was a friend of God, that Simeon was an ordinary man, Simeon was common, Simeon was mundane, Simeon was obscure, Simeon was boring. He was righteous, he was devout, he was faithful, he was waiting for the promise of God, and then it tells us that the Holy Spirit was on him. The New Revised Standard Version says it like this, that the Holy Spirit rested on Simeon. Now, you have to understand this. For those of you guys who understand the massive implication of this, Jesus, Jesus has not yet entered into his ministry. He's eight days old. One of the primary reasons why Jesus comes, amongst many other things that he comes to accomplish, but he comes in the fullness of the Spirit He's crucified and resurrected and ascended into heaven so that the Holy Spirit can inhabit and rest upon our lives. It's one of the primary reasons why Jesus came. And what we see throughout Scripture is that the Holy Spirit rests upon people for these massive exploits. Right When you think about the judges of old, when you think about Gideon, and you think about Samson, and you think about Samuel, you think about David, and we see the Holy Spirit comes upon people for mighty exploits. But what are you doing on an old man's life? What are you doing on an old man's life? Holy Spirit, you got better things to do than that. The Holy Spirit says, no, I don't. No, I don't. Because I am a sucker for people who pursue me. (laughs) The Holy Spirit says, I break for intimacy. (laughs) I break for passionate pursuit of me. 
right? The Holy Spirit's doing his thing in the world, and he's got all this stuff that he's got going on over here with Zechariah and Elizabeth and John and Jesus, and yet there's this quiet old man whose heart is set on knowing God, and the Holy Spirit's like, guys, hold on real quick. Simeon, what can I do for you? Simeon, you're moving my heart. Simeon, let me tell you a secret. I'm about to cash in on something I told you decades ago. When you chose to remain celibate or when you chose to remain pure, and we don't know whether or not he was celibate, but I like to believe that, that Simeon cashed in what the world c- c- tells us is valuable, and he says, I'm going to give that to you for one moment of holding your son in my arms. And to Simeon, it was worth it. I need that kind of revelation. I want that kind of revelation. I want that kind of revelation of the beauty and the worth of Jesus. Friends, that's called revelation. That's called revelation of what's worth it. That's called revelation of what's eternal, of what matters in the eyes of God. The Holy Spirit rested on him. I want to read the latter part of Luke chapter 2. And Jonathan, if you would, you can come on up right now. And I, this is the part that always gets me. In Luke chapter 2, verse 28, as far as we know, and we don't know because the scripture doesn't tell us, but as far as we know, we don't have a record of anybody else in the scripture besides Joseph and Mary holding God in their arms, but this man. And the thing that blows my mind is that when Jesus, or when Simeon wakes up this day, it's it's another day, Thomas. It's another normal day. God, are you coming through? Are you showing up? Is the consolation of Israel happening today? Is the promise of the Gentiles happening today? He's getting his clothes on. He doesn't know, but he hears this tiny little nudge in his heart. Simeon, go to the temple. And Simeon walks into the temple, and you've got to know that there's other kids that day who are eight days old who are getting circumcised according to the law of Moses. How does Simeon recognize an eight-year-old Messiah? How does an eight-day-old, not eight-year-old, but an eight-day-old, like all the babies, I think y'all babies are cute, but they all look the same to me, okay? I'm up here dedicating babies. I I lose track of names. Y'all all cute. Y'all all look the same to me. Simeon walks in. And the Holy Spirit, like a honing beacon, is just flashing on Joseph and Mary's baby, right? Here's what I want to tell you. that when friend, Oh, God, when you cultivate friendship with God, when you cultivate the oil of intimacy in the secret place with God, when, when you choose to circumcise the pleasures of this life for the pleasures of heaven, when... When you ask God for eyes to see what truly matters, here's what here's will happen. He will show you where he's at in the middle of the most mundane and quiet and common and boring interactions of the world. He will show you where he's at. He will give you eyes that discern his presence. He will give you the ability to see him. And so Simeon picks up this baby, to which if I'm Joseph and Mary, I'm saying, listen, old man, who, like, 
But no, they know, they see it, they sense it. The presence of God invades that moment. Simeon comes, the spirit of prophecy is on him. He begins to prophesy over this child and what he has waited decades of his life for, guys. You gotta know that there were times where Simeon said, am I crazy? Did I get it wrong? What am I doing? Simeon shows up and he holds God in the flesh. (sighs) Consolation of Israel. You were worth it. Jesus says it like this in Matthew chapter 13. He says, the kingdom of God is like a man who went out and he saw a treasure in a field. And because he had revelation of how valuable that treasure was, he went back and he sold everything. Simeon sold everything. He sold his life to hold God. And then Jesus goes on. He says, the kingdom of God is like a man who finds a pearl and realizes this pearl is more valuable than anything that I could ever have in my entire life. And he sells it all just so that he could obtain this pearl. And guys, that is what I want for New Life Midtown. I don't care what people say about this house. I don't care how big we get. I'm not interested in being flashy. I don't want to be known by the world. I want this house to be a house that when people walk in here, they go, my God, I think God is in this place. I want people to walk in here and I want marriages to have hope again. And I want teenage kids that are just acting like knuckleheads and thinking about throwing their lives away to have an encounter with God. And I want people that are strung out and addicted to substances to walk in here and and God just falls in their lap and they say, I'm gonna trade it all, it's worth it. And I wanna see young young 20-somethings say, I'll cash in my 20s to know you or I'll cash in my 30s to know you. And if I gotta give up a couple of meals or if I gotta do some hard things or if I gotta turn away uh, entertainment or if I gotta say, I'm not gonna date for a year. I, I, I I don't care what it takes, God. I've got revelation that you're worth it. I want this to be a house where Revelation comes and invades the hearts of humanity and says it's worth it. I want us to be a house where we're so fascinated with the Son of God. That dry, dead, indifferent, stale, boring, passionless religion is not allowed here. It can't live here because we're we're a company of burning hearts that are longing for the arrival of our King and that every other lover in this world falls to the wayside, you guys. I want us to be a company of Simeons and Annas. That's who you're called to be. That's who we're called to be. And listen, he wants friendship with you like that. Altar team, you can come forward. Next week, January the 8th, New Life Midtown is launching into a 21-day fast. This is something that we used to do every year for years. And the past few years, we kind of took a little bit of a hiatus. But we're resurrecting this spiritual discipline. And here's the spirit of this. Let me just say this, guys. This is not a legalistic fast. You don't even have to participate. Nobody is setting the guidelines or the boundaries of what this is going to look like for you. But from Sunday, January the 8th to Sunday, January the 29th, we'll all celebrate together on the 29th. We're just saying, God, I'm going to give you three weeks. 
and I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take Facebook off of my phone. I'm gonna, I'm gonna cut certain things away that bring my physical flesh uh, a measure of pleasure. And I'm gonna say, God, I'm gonna cut those things away because I want a hunger for you to stir inside of me. Because I wanna be more hungry for you than cheesecake and steaks and fried foods and the latest gossip and my favorite Netflix show that I wanna binge out on. God, I want hunger for you. I need hunger for you to stir up inside of me. And I need a company of people that are hungry for God with me. I I need a company of people that are gonna say, Pastor, I'm gonna be hungry for God too. I'm gonna chase after God. And imagine, imagine what this house could be like if we, just can, if we just committed to be a hungry house, to be a house that stewards and carries the presence of God, like fresh hot bread, and that when people walk into our homes or our small groups or our youth ministry or our children's ministry, they walk into our corporate gathering and they taste the hot bread of heaven and their lives are forever changed. Guys, it's worth it. It's worth it. So, Simeons and Annas, will you stand to your feet this morning? I'm just going to call you that. I'm just going to speak that over your lives. As we come to the table of the Lord, I want us to come with a, with a fresh devotion, with a fresh commitment, with a fresh hunger, with a fresh desire, and allow the Holy Spirit to breathe on that. And Jonathan, as they're coming, if there's anything that you want to lead us into and sing over us and sing with us, I want to welcome that. But friends, I welcome you today to come to the table of the Lord as we participate in the spirit of friendship with